Growing up, some kids want to be firefighters, astronauts, doctors. Mm -hmm. Not the main character of this week's episode. Oh no. Growing up, he dreamt of being an executioner. This is the story of the UK's last hangman. This is Time Crunch. Hello and welcome to Time Crunch, a quick history podcast. I'm Felicity and I know a lot about history. And I'm Ben and I don't. So, Felicity, who is this kid who wanted to be an executioner? You called him the last hangman. Yeah. Well, today I'm going to tell you his story. Okay. The story of the UK's last hangman, Albert Pierpoint. Hmm. So, where does our story start? Well, Albert was, you know, a pretty normal kid. He was born in 1905 in Yorkshire and was the third of five children. So, how did this very normal kid come to want to be an executioner? Well, it was kind of like a family business, so to speak. Ah, like a pizzeria. Like a morbid pizzeria. Yeah, the mom and pop executioner family. Very nice. <laughs> His uh, father, Henry, had like a variety of jobs. And one of them was an executioner. His father actually even ended up convincing his own brother, so that's Albert's Uncle Tom, to become an executioner as well. What was the job of an executioner like? You, you said that it was just one of his jobs. Was it not a real job? Yeah, exactly. So if we're going to keep it on track with that pizza analogy, <laughs> it's kind of like you get paid per pizza. Except the pizzas are people. Yeah, it's... yeah anyways. Um, yeah, you get... It was paid per hanging. Okay. So there's no pension. It was really part-time. Uh, it was definitely like a side gig. Okay. However, something that I'd like to point out is that, you know, how, how do you picture Albert? What do you picture him as or his family? What's an executioner look like to you? Yeah, I, the brave heart comes to mind. You know, the, the guy <laughs> in, in the black hood, I'm pretty sure he's shirtless, though that might just be my imagination running wild. It's wishful thinking. Yeah, kind of smirking, <laughs> sneering in the corner, sharpening blades. Well, that is definitely how the media portrays executioners. Mm -hmm. um, big burly men, masks over their head. Shirtless. You know, I'm pretty sure they have like weird underwear with like stripes, but that could be some <laughs> That's sort your of that could be my imagination. <laughs> but for all accounts, an executioner was a very normal person mm -hmm. who did their job, albeit like a very morbid one, like mm -hmm. any other job. Mm -hmm. Kind of like a morgue worker sort of thing. It's just a exactly yeah okay. exactly yeah. So the peer point saw the job of an executioner as kind of like, it was a role that was needed in society. Mm -hmm. Someone needed to do it. But it should be understood that an executioner was a job that required discretion and respect, the mm -hmm. utmost respect. In fact, executioners had a very clear way that they had to conduct themselves from the point of entering the prison to doing the execution and to leaving. Mm -hmm. They weren't supposed to talk about their job. They weren't supposed to publish anything about it. It was supposed to be very... Like almost secretive. Almost secretive. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm -hmm. It wasn't something to brag about necessarily at all. Yeah, okay. So you mentioned that... So the personality and, and respect and conduct of an executioner was super important. I guess if Albert became an executioner, was his dad and, and was his uncle really good at being an executioner? You know, they were both good at their jobs. They were go good at the technical side of things. Mm -hmm. However, to be an executioner, you kind of had to have a certain type of personality. You had to be able to remove yourself and your job from your personal life. And Albert's father, Henry, was not good at that. 
So Henry actually became an alcoholic. He ended up being removed from the list of executioners in 1910 after arriving to the prison one day for an execution and being completely drunk and berating his assistant. So despite his dad being fired from being an executioner, Albert still wanted to pursue that career? Yeah, so his uncle was still on the official list of executioners. His uncle's personality was actually quite different, kind of the opposite to Henry's. Uh, he did his job with the utmost respect and was able to separate his personal life from his job. Mm. So how did we know that Albert wanted to be an executioner besides obviously knowing history and knowing that he became one eventually? So that's, I'm glad you brought that up because that's actually a pretty funny story. So when Albert was in school, he had to write an essay about what did he want to do when he grew up. You know, very typical like elementary school age assignment. Yeah. Uh, when the teacher peeked over Albert's head to see what he was writing, he noticed that it said executioner. Mm. In this essay that he wrote for school, Albert actually said, when I leave school, I should like to be a public executioner like my dad is because it needs a steady man with good hands like my dad and my uncle Tom and I shall be the same. Oh, so he, I, I guess he still respected his dad and his uncle for their job, eh? Yeah. So what happened next? So in 1922, Albert's father Henry passed away mm -hmm. and he ended up leaving some stuff to Albert. So books, records, diary of his executions with lists of the height, the weight, the rope, even the neck details about the neck mm -hmm. in this book the morbid parting gift yeah definitely was so after his father died albert was responsible to support his family so he had to leave school he ended up working a bunch of odd jobs at the as a mill worker and ended up becoming a grocery driver mm -hmm. in 1931 he wrote to the prison commission to apply to be an assistant executioner uh, but surprisingly he was turned away because there was no space oh believe it or not w was it like a, a hot commodity that job did everyone want to be an assistant executioner apparently however obviously he eventually got this assistant position mm -hmm. you know eventually they called him back they said okay we have an opening and he became an assistant executioner mm -hmm. so he would train on practice dummies and uh, practice to hang he didn't do any actual hangings to risk sounding naive isn't the job of a hangman pretty straightforward and simple to quote pirates of the caribbean isn't it just my favorite movie <laughs> <laughs> isn't it just a long drop and a sudden stop seems pretty straightforward so uh it used to be mm -hmm. um and you know we're gonna dive into a little bit the history of an of execution at this point you mm -hmm. know to give some background um it's interesting you asked that question uh because for much of the history of execution in britain the word execution was actually synonymous with torture oh people saw these executions it was a public event mm -hmm. you know people went there for it was entertainment yeah, it was for entertainment, but it was also a way for uh, the government to kind of strike fear into the people and make sure that they don't act up kind of situation. Mm -hmm. So executions were a public thing, but they were also about torture and prolonged. So it wasn't it's something you didn't die instantaneous. It was you died through strangulation. So mm -hmm. it was a long drawn out process. Mm -hmm. but, but I guess there was a... Uh... A turn of, of opinion at some point. Yeah, exactly. So eventually it changed from being public to private. And that's when it went uh, went a completely other di direction. Instead of being about a torture and a show, it ended up being about punishment. Strictly about punishment and something quick, something humane. But essentially to, you know, 
uh, deal with the condemned, to remove someone who is seen as a permanent risk to society. Mm-hmm. That's where the long drop and a sudden stop came about, was later on, because through this method of executing, the person's neck would be broken. So mm-hmm. they would be unconscious immediately, and then death would happen soon after. So it was one of the most humane ways for someone to be executed. Mm-hmm. Unlike Braveheart. (laughs) (laughs) But again, isn't it just simple enough to have a long enough rope so that the drop is hard enough? Like, where where does practice come in here? Uh, So there's actually a system that they set up called the Table of Drops. It's a cool name. And I I will tell you a story as to why this became a science. Okay. So this guy, James Berry, was the guy who originally made this calculations for the Table of Drops. However, uh, there was this prisoner who ended up being in a really poor condition called Robert Goodall. And when they calculated the length of the rope needed for his execution, they ended up miscalculating completely because, you know, it didn't really match up perfectly with the table. People didn't have too much experience with this kind of execution. And this man ended up being decapitated. That's an option? That can happen? Apparently. Oh my. And nobody wants that. No. That's bad for everybody. Yeah, it's definitely not a good thing for anybody. (laughs) Okay, so I guess the practice comes in of consulting the table of drops, being like, oh, this is the person, and then there's some, like... Adjustments needed. Yeah, some artistry, if you will. Yeah, yeah, some science to it. So some adjustments would be made for, you know, the, you know, if the person had a different type of neck, or, you know, they were in good physical health, bad physical health. Etc. So the main character here, Albert Pierpoint, goes to essentially hangman school and learns and hones his craft, right? Exactly. When does he stop practicing on dummies and, and actually go into his field? So uh, his first execution was with his uncle. So at the time, the sheriff would choose the executioner and the assistant. Mm-hmm. However, his uncle Tom was hired for a job in the Irish Free State, and so he was able to choose his own assistant. And of course, he chose his nephew Albert. Oh, so he had an in. Yeah, exactly. Cool. And um, you know, Tom ended up being kind of the mentor for Albert. So he Albert really respected him. Tom was very different from his father. He <laughs> handled it so much better. It's actually a funny quote is he he told Albert that if you can't do it without whiskey, then don't do it at all. It's a subtle jab at his dead brother. It's, it's kind of messed up. <laughs> yeah, Albert really modeled himself after his uncle. Mhm. So Albert ended up working as an assistant executioner for the rest of the 30s, mostly with his Uncle Tom, but also, you know, doing a few other jobs. Okay. You said until the, for the rest of the 30s, what happened after that? So he eventually had his big break. He was um, helping a newly promoted lead executioner when the executioner got really confused with the drop length calculations. Hmm. And Albert, who is really good at this job, the science, the craft... He knew exactly what to do. He stepped in to advise. And after this, Albert was permanently added to the list of head executioners the next day. Cool. It's pretty good. <laughs> so how exactly how good was Albert at what he did? Uh, he was very good at it. Okay. So, you know, he saw his job as something that was needed, but something that needed to be done humanely. Yeah. Like I, like I mentioned. Um... And so, you know, the whole process of going into the prison and uh, conducting the execution took a total of 24 hours to set up everything. Mm -hmm. However, the execution itself, from the second of him entering the cell door to the opening of the trap door, only took 12 seconds. So 12 seconds from getting the condemned to the drop. Yeah. 
Wow, that is So, a efficient. very fast process. So, if he was this good, was he like a minor celebrity? Did everybody be like, Definitely oh, not. there's Albert. <laughs> He's so good. <laughs> but you said no? Yeah, no, not at all. Uh, so, like I said, this was like a job that needed the mo- utmost discretion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, Albert, first of all, he didn't talk about his job at all to anyone else. In fact, it was kind of a sore spot for his brother. His brother didn't really like that his father and brother were doing this, did the same job. Um, and so he actually never spoke about it with his family. He, his wife didn't even know that he was an executioner. He kept it a secret from his wife? Yeah, yeah. Until what? She, come Until on. after she, they were married. And then he was like, hey, honey. He's like. On their honeymoon, <laughs> they go to. <laughs> actually, he ended up getting called for an execution and had to leave like soon after they were married for like a week or two. Oh. And uh, when he came back, he told her and she was like, I knew. <laughs> She's like, yeah, I figured it out. No idea how you would figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> Wives he just will comes figure home it out. with noose in his pocket. He's like, oh, nothing here. <laughs> oh, <geez. Whoa. laughs> Oops. So you mentioned that he got sent off shortly after his marriage to do his job elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Was this something that happened a lot? I was kind of under the impression that he stayed within the UK. So he was the head executioner for the UK. So this meant that he was chosen by Britain to perform executions elsewhere, mm-hmm. outside of the country. For example? Germany. So he ended up getting chosen to perform the executions on Nazi war criminals after the Second World War. So oh. he's the lead executioner for the British. Oh, so he must have had his hands full. There were a lot of war a lot criminals. Of Nazi war criminals. Yeah, after World <laughs> yeah. War II. So he, he did. He ended up having uh, around 10 executions he was responsible for a day at a certain point. That's a lot. That is a lot. Goodness. Um, in particular, he was responsible for uh, the Nazi war criminals who were in charge of the prisoners at the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. Mm. And uh, two notable horrendous figures whom he executed was uh, Josef Kramer and Irma Gresser, who were called by prisoners the Beast of Belsen and the Hyena of Auschwitz, respectively. So, if they... So, psychopaths. They had those nicknames. They were terrible, terrible people. Yeah. Yikes. So, Pierpoint actually did other things while he was out of country. He ended up going to Austria to teach them techniques for long drop hanging because they hadn't done it there before. Oh, I guess you could say he showed them the rope. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) There's a notable trial that comes to mind when you mention... Nazi war criminals. Was was he at all involved in the Nuremberg trials? I'm so proud of you. I know. I, I I'm know, so proud of you. I know some things about history. I'm okay, so proud. You, did you watch the Netflix show? I did not. Oh, watch it. Okay, I will. Um, yeah, so he actually was sent to Germany partially because they wanted him to be the lead executioner in the Nuremberg trials for the war criminals. Mm-hmm. However, um, for some reason, don't know why, he ended up being sent back and the job was given to an American executioner. It's a very American thing to do. <laughs> was this American at least good as well at his job? Was, was he also very experienced? Uh, no. Um, oh. <laughs> he actually had never hung anyone before. So he wasn't an executioner. He was an amateur. He was a... He, he was like the executioner using like electric chairs. Oh. Yeah, which is what the Americans used at that point. Oh, and so he had no clue. Did he make a massive mess of things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the people ended up being hung for 20 minutes 
they just strangled to death. Uh, he miscalculated the drop, the trap door size, and someone's nose, a few people's noses got chopped off. Uh, someone's face got ripped off. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so he made a mess of things. So after the war, I'm guessing executions died down a bit, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. What did Albert do? He ended up opening a pub, actually, and it ended oh. up becoming quite successful. Um, it was called Help the Poor Struggler. Okay. And people like to go there because they had known after the executions of Nazi war criminals, people ended up knowing his name because hmm. it ended up coming out in, um, in the media. <laughs> and so people went to this bar because they were hoping he would tell them stories. But of course, he still didn't. Yeah, he was professional. They just went because they wanted, were hoping to catch a glimpse of, the, you know, an executioner. It was mm -hmm. kind of like a special thing. So he did end up becoming somewhat of a celebrity, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Which he did not like. He hated that, actually. So after the Second World War, uh, the opinions actually towards execution started to change. Okay. Um, in 1949, there was a special report that ended up being commissioned for executions, which detailed, you know, how it was going about, um, what execution had happened, the, what was the process. And so obviously, as the lead executioner, Albert ended up being asked to provide numbers and to provide details. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he really didn't mind providing details about the executions, about the names, he, the weight, the, the height, and the rope length. You know, he kept a detailed journal just like his father had. Yeah. What did bother him, however, was that they asked him to give the exact number of people he hanged. And he had a problem with that because it wasn't something he was proud of. He yeah. didn't like to think of the number. He mostly thought of it as a day by day or, I don't know, execution by execution process. And it was about, you know, doing it humanely, not just yeah. about, you know. To him, it was a job. And each of these individual people couldn't just be reduced to a number, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And he was really uncomfortable with that number. Actually, it the old number only came out after his death. Oh. So he kept it a secret his entire life. He didn't give them the special report, the exact number? No, he did not. Oh, wow. He did not, no. Respect. Um, so this report ended up, you know, calming people down a bit and mm -hmm. taking them away from... Its goal was essentially to distract people from abolition. Mm -hmm. um, so executions continued after the war, I guess, if the special report was successful? Yeah, um, it was still like a part-time thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but after the war... Pierpoint executed a number of uh, serial killers as well as some controversial convicts. Okay, so I guess we'll get into those now. Yeah, yeah, we will. So in 1949, he hanged a man named John Haig, who was nicknamed the Acid Bath Murderer. I That's a very descriptive nickname. I feel like you can kind of get, you know, what he, how he murdered. Um, uh -huh. He would dissolve the bodies of his victims in sulfuric acid, and he murdered nine people. Um... Yeah, this guy was crazy. Yeah. Um, but then Pierpoint did his job. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the next year, though, uh, Pierpoint ended up hanging James Corbett, who was actually one of the regular customers at his pub. Oh, my. So he knew this guy pretty well. Yeah, he did. Uh, they actually sang duets together and called each other Tish and Tosh. Oh, so they were like a karaoke duo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, jeez. Essentially. Or, you know, I don't know, like 1950s pub style. Uh, that must have affected... 
Pierpoint a lot. Did he ever write about that or say anything about it? Yeah, so he, he actually made a statement about it. He said that, as I polished the glasses, I thought if any man had a deterrent to murder poised before him, it was this troubadour, whom I called Tish. Coming to terms with his obsessions in the singing room of help, the poor struggler. His bar. His bar, yeah. Mm. He was not only aware of the rope, he had the man who handled it beside him, singing a duet. The deterrent did not work, he killed the thing he loved. So he was like, despite me literally being the man who would punish him if he killed, he still killed. So the turn was useless. Yeah, exactly. Jeez. Yeah. So as I mentioned, you know, he presided over a number of controversial executions. Mm -hmm. um, And these executions actually helped change the attitudes of the country away from capital punishment. Okay. So as we mentioned in the beginning of this episode, he was the UK's last hangman. So how did that happen? Um, so the first controversial execution was the execution of Timothy Evans. So Evans' wife and baby daughter were murdered and, um, he was convicted and executed for that murder. Evans was. Evans was, Okay, why is that controversial? Because he was innocent. Oh. So Evans actually had an educational uh, delay. Mm-hmm. And so he was easily manipulated by the actual murderer, his neighbor, John Christie, who ex- killed his uh, his wife and his daughter, as well as several other women, and buried them under the floorboards in his apartment. So Evans ended up getting manipulated by Christie, as well as the police, to basically say that he did it. To, to admit to his crime that he didn't yeah, commit. Yeah, that he didn't commit. And Evans was executed, and then three years later... Um, the real killer, Christy, was uncovered because someone moved into his apartment and found the bodies under the floorboard. Um, Christy was this, like, messed up, uh, sadist who found pleasure from having people buried under his floorboard. That, yeah, that is messed up, messed up for sure. yeah. But one can see how this was a very controversial execution. I can imagine innocent man being revealed like, oh, he was executed despite being innocent. That would definitely affect public perception. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were there any other controversial executions that Pierpoint was responsible for? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, a really messed up execution was the execution of Derek Bentley in 1953. So uh, Bentley didn't even kill anybody. He was a 19-year-old boy, and he was basically surrounded by the police, him and his friend, and he shouted, let them have it. Um, This ended up being used against him in court because his friend ended up shooting at the police and killing people. Um, However, you know, the debate was, did he say, let them have it, as in shoot them, or let them have it, as in give them the gun? It's pretty ambiguous. Yeah. It's like that scene in The Dark Knight where Joker is holding... Rachel over the edge and Batman's like, let her go. He's like, drop. <laughs> drop her. And, and the Joker's like, poor choice of words, Batman. <laughs> so apparently the courts. <laughs> Interesting. Benley ended up being arrested for his friend uh, uh, killing these people. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bentley was 19, but his friend was much younger. His friend was uh, 15 years old. And so it's believed that Bentley was tried in his stead. So because they couldn't execute his friend, who was much younger, um, they executed him instead, which is super messed up and bad. Yeah. Yeah. Did Pierpoint ever have sort of opinions on these trials? 
being involved in all these controversial things must have affected him. So the thing is, uh, is he really was not did not participate in the trials at all. He didn't read the newspaper. He didn't read up on the trials. Didn't watch the telly or listen to the radio. He tried to s- separate himself from the trials of these criminals mm-hmm. because in his mind, it wasn't his it wasn't his decision to of whether they are guilty or innocent. It was the court's decision of whether they were guilty and innocent, and his job was simply to carry out the court's decision. So he stayed intentionally ignorant, I guess, to sort of save his own psyche? Yeah, it kind of seems like that, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So he never really, you know, since he wasn't didn't know about these court trials, he never really had an opinion on someone's innocence or guilt. Mm-hmm. Which in the case of Derek Bentley is... Uh, Questionable. Yeah. Yeah. Any any other uh, executions of note? So uh, one of the one of the towards the end of his career, one of the last people he's executed was Ruth Ellis. Okay. So this was a very controversial execution. How come? So Ruth Ellis was sent to the gallows because she shot her boyfriend five times in the chest when he was a pub, in a pub with his friends. But many people still cried out for her release. That. Doesn't track. I mean, there were obviously witnesses if he was in a pub. Mm-hmm. Was there like some weird Scooby-Doo stuff where someone is in a mask? Like, why was this controversial? So her innocence of killing him wasn't the thing that was debated. It was more about whether they should execute her for this. She was a beautiful 28-year-old socialite. Mm-hmm. And many people were already questioning whether women should be executed at this time. Which is obviously sexist but (laughs) um, okay so they were just upset that they didn't like that a woman was being hung huh essentially every time a woman was hung it was like a whole thing because you know typically the the image isn't of a beautiful young woman at the gallows it's of like a criminal like with broken teeth and stuff that's what people picture when they think of someone being executed so so there was outrage about this yeah there was a lot of media presence a lot of outrage um but Ruth Ellis ended up being convicted and sentenced to be hung because the prosecutor asked her, when you walked into the bar and shot him in the chest, what were your intentions? And she said, well, isn't it obvious? I intended to kill him. And that sent her immediately. That was an immediate admission of guilt and gave her the punishment of being hung. Pretty straightforward. The weird thing is, is like we mentioned before, um... Pierpoint was very much, you know, not in touch with, like, the media, right? You yeah. know, he didn't know what was happening. But for some reason, the only person he ever contacted that was related to the people he hung was Ruth Ellis's sister. Why? I had no idea. Nobody knows why. It's just a weird thing. She just got letters from this guy. Yeah. Huh. What did the letters say? Well, so one of the letters mentioned how the media said that she cried and she was, you know, very upset about being right before she was hung and she whispered something to him. And he set the record straight to her sister and said she was as dignified as any man at her last her last moments. She held her head up high and she was very brave when facing the gallows. She didn't say anything. She actually pursed her lips into a smile before she was hung. So the media tried to sensationalize it and be like, a woman was hanged and she, she was hysterical. She obviously was emotional. Yeah. And he yeah. was like, no, your sister was brave. Wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So what, what came of the Ellis execution? Was that the end for Pierpoint? Did he have a change of heart? So Ellis was the last woman to be executed in Britain. Okay. And she was also uh, the second to last person 
to for Pierpoint to execute, the last being Norman Green, who he executed two weeks later. Okay. Many people thought that he stopped, he retired because of her. However, it was actually a dispute over being paid. So they were chipping him of his payment. Oh, and he was like, you know, it's not worth it. I'm done. Yeah, and he was older at that point and, you know. It, it kind of sounds like there would be ulterior motives. That, that just sounds like a big coincidence, right? For him to retire over something so small. It does, but he made a statement that specifically said that it was not the Ruth Ellis case that made him retire. Mm. It was just bad timing, I guess. I guess so. So after his retirement, what did Pierpoint get up to? Well, him and his wife, they ran their pub um, until they retired in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. In uh, 1974, he ended up publishing an autobiography that was titled Executioner Pierpoint. That's a very short and to the point It's like the title, title of this episode. Like podcaster <laughs> Felicity. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so I guess we get a lot of our information about this topic from his autobiography. Yeah, yeah, straight exactly. from the horse's mouth. Yeah, which is you know probably the most legit. Was there anything notable in the autobiography? Yeah, so one of the interesting things is that uh, towards the seventies, uh, Pierpoint's views on capital punishment changed completely. Really? Yeah, that's surprising. It's weird to find that out at the end of your career as an executioner. <laughs> You're like, hmm. Actually, no. <laughs> yeah, I take it back, guys. It's like... Well, he, he really thought that it was something that would help, you know, removing a dangerous person from the streets and preventing more murders mm-hmm. um, because there was this punishment that was so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, however, uh, he noticed that, you know, capital punishment wasn't a deterrent. It didn't prevent anything. And he said, um, it is said to be a deterrent. I cannot agree. There have been murders since the beginning of time, and we shall go on looking for deterrence until the end of time. If death were a deterrent, I might be expected to know. It is I who have faced them last, young lads and girls, working men, grandmothers. I have been amazed to see the courage with which they take the walk into the unknown. It did not deter them then, and it had not deterred them when they committed what they were convicted for. All the men and women whom I have faced at that final moment convinced me that in what I have done, I have not prevented a single murder. Wow. Yeah. So he was like, That is one great. hell of a quote. I know. At the end of your 20 something year executioner career, to be like, I, it was pointless. Yep. <laughs> it's actually just a really long not joke. Remember from Borat? Well, well we were. Uh... You are very pretty. Matt. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so after Pierpoint's death in 1992, at the age of 87, they made moles of his hands and face, which can be now seen at the Wandsworth Prison Museum in London pretty morbid that's interesting <laughs> it's an interesting museum. i guess if ever you're <laughs> yeah if ever you're in london and want to see pierpoint's hands and face molds uh check out the wandsworth museum <laughs> also upon his death his uh book with the details of each execution and the names uh were given to the museum as well and for the first time people could know the actual number of people that he ended up executing like I said, this isn't something that he wanted to publish. He didn't really want uh, people to know how many people he executed because it wasn't the number that was important. Yeah. Um, and we, we actually weren't sure if we wanted to share it. Yeah. But But for the sake of putting uh, of myth aside, some people have said 600, some people have said 500. The actual number is 435 people over a 24-year career. Wow. 
So if people want to learn more about Albert Pierpoint... Uh, Obviously, the best thing to do is to read his memoir. Yeah. Yeah, his autobiography. Which is called... Which is called Executioner Colon, colon Pierpoint. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Thank you for listening to this episode of Time Crunch History. We are back from hiatus. Sorry we were gone for a bit. Uh, life got in the way, but we are back on track, uh, releasing episodes every two weeks again. Uh, if you like what you heard, if you enjoyed this has- this episode, the best way to support us and to help us grow is to share the show with a friend. Really, hit up your friend who you think you might enjoy this. Be like, hey, Greg, listen to this episode <laughs> of Time Crunch History. Or if you really didn't like the show, share it with an enemy and be like, hey, Greg, listen to this episode of Time Crunch History. <laughs> I'm assuming you have both an enemy and a friend named Greg. <laughs> Uh, if you want to connect with us, there are a couple of ways to do that. On Facebook and Instagram, we are at Time Crunch Podcast. There we upload pictures, uh, teasers, summaries, fun facts related to the episodes, as well as some visual aids. We'll put the pictures of the molds that are at the museum, for example. Um, you can also send us an email if you want to share with us a listener-submitted quick history fact, which we can read on the next episode at timecrunchhistory at gmail.com. If you send us your cool history fact... Uh, like I said, we'll read it on air in the next episode. That's all we have. Next one should be up on, oh my, two weeks from now, whenever that is. Uh, we'll see you then. Bye-bye. Bye.